So hello everybody and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church, where this community of Kensington Unitarians meets each week for worship on a Sunday morning such as this. Ours is a community created by all those who walk through our doors. Visitors, <laughs> members, occasional attenders, migratory birds who fly in and bless us with their annual presence. You are all welcome here. And these opening words that I'm going to read now by Kathleen McTeague speak of this place as a sanctuary, a sanctuary for all, whoever we are and however we are. And I wonder if some of these words might speak to you. You who are broken-hearted, who woke today with the winds of despair whistling through your mind, come in. You who are brave but wounded, limping through life and hurting with each step, come in. You who are fearful, who live with shadows hovering over your shoulders, come in. For this place is sanctuary and it is for you. You who are filled with happiness, whose abundance overflows, come in. You who walk through your world with lightness and grace, who awoke this morning with strength and hope, you who have everything to give, come in. This place is your calling, a riverbank to channel the sweet waters of your life, the place where you are called by the world's need. Here we offer in love and here we receive in gratitude. Here we make a circle from the great gifts of breath, attention and purpose. Come in. And I light our chalice today, this symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist communities. I light it for the increasing numbers of people who are imagining other ways of living, other ways of living sustainably and harmoniously together here on our precious planet Earth. A story a story of a rich man on holiday by the seaside who came across a fisherman sitting beside his boat smoking his pipe and drinking a cup of tea. And as some of us are wont to do, he made a comment. Well, why, why aren't you out fishing in your boat? It's a fine day. You could catch plenty of fish. You're just wasting valuable time sitting here idly like this, said the wealthy traveller. Well, came the reply, I've, I've caught enough fish for today, why do I need any more? Well, well, more fish. More fish means more profit. You could sell your excess fish in the market. After a while, you'd have enough money to buy yourself some bigger nets. And then that would allow you to catch even more fish. And then you could maybe buy a second boat and hire a couple of men to work for you. 
And do you know, perhaps one day you could own a whole fleet of boats. In ten years you might even have a big house, nice clothes, a lot of money in the bank, said that rich man, sticking out his chest. And what would I do then? Well, well then you'd really be able to take it easy and enjoy life. Said the fisherman as he had another sip of his cup of tea. What do you think I'm doing now? <laughs> and that is the story of the contented fisherman. The theme of my address a bit later in the service is basically enough. Why do we need more? And It's based on a book uh, by John Nash. And if you were to look for this book in the bookshop, you would probably find it classified with economics, possibly politics. But in fact, it contains a lot about philosophy, psychology, and indeed spirituality. And I've chosen a passage which reflects the author's interest in this area. The innate human urge for connection with our fellows seems also to lie at the heart of humankind's unique sense of spirituality. Spiritual people of all faiths and none often describe their mystical experiences as a union with something larger than themselves. Some call this the universe or nature, while others call it God. Mystical experiences are not exactly rare. Think of our sense of awe at seeing a beautiful sunset, or the ecstatic sense of ego dislocation, that happens when you're in love. Some neurological researchers claim to have found the mechanism for producing this sense of universal oneness. They believe it occurs when the brain's orientation area, which creates an egotistical wall between our sense of self and our sense of the rest of the world, is shut down. The process, called deafferentation, lets us glimpse our connectedness with everything. It may be produced by meditation or prayer, and can create anything from warm feelings of fellowship to soaring mystic experiences. But we are rapidly losing our long-standing connection with humankind's rich history of spiritual thought and wonder because the more more world derides any form of religiosity it derides it as sad, embarrassing and old amputated from our vast history of spiritual ideas and debate we we lose our line of communication with people who are just like us who happened to live in earlier times, who also wondered about the nature of life and questioned what our purpose could be. Consumer society promises to drown out such perplexing thoughts 
by holding us secure in the certainties of getting and spending. Perhaps we might take our rocketing levels of depression as indicating a certain lack of success in this area. Meanwhile, our non-dogmatic tradition of spiritual questing quietly continues, if only as a minority sport. I'm rather drawn to the newly emerging concept of scientific pantheism, an approach that harnesses discoveries from fields such as quantum physics and space exploration to support the idea that the universe and what many religions call God are just the same thing. Scientific pantheism's suggestion that the cosmos is divine, the earth is sacred, seems as good a way as any to emphasize our vital interconnection with our planet. Some words from Enough. It um, seems to be a fact of life that some people in the world have too much, far, than, far more than they really need to live comfortably, and some people have not enough to survive, let alone thrive. In between, there are many more people who have enough, but would like just a little bit, or maybe quite a lot more. It seems that we are never satisfied. In his book, Enough, John Nash, who is a journalist and a member of our Unitarian Congregation in Brighton, makes the case that there is now too much of many things. Information, food, possessions and stuff, even work, happiness and economic growth. The author, writing in 2007, says that there has been more new information created in the last 30 years than in the previous 5,000. And at that time, the number of television channels has risen from 4 to 123, and it's probably a lot more now. In 2004, companies worldwide spent more than £200 billion on advertising. There is now a new science of neuromarketing which advises manufacturers which stimuli will lead people to decide how they spend their money. Our lives are log-jammed with data. Not only unwanted spam, but emails, phone calls, texts and many other media. And clearly we have a love-hate relationship with the mobile phone. On the one hand, many people have them, but at the same time, surveys of modern life consistently point to them as our most hated modern tool. One university study of hundreds of 18 to 25-year-olds 
claims that 40% of these young people are addicts to their phones. Though how you would measure that, I'm not quite sure. It is true that our children have never known anything other than a life enveloped in these media. It will be some time before we know the long-term effects of all this. But it doesn't sound very healthy that around 60% of us apparently now check our work emails when we are away. While our parents and grandparents' generations played outside with skipping ropes and spinning tops, today's youngsters are often in their rooms with computers and video games. One of the more intriguing ideas explored in this section of the book about information overload is that of a scientist called Jeffrey Miller, who is an evolutionary psychologist at the University of New Mexico. He claims that the bulk of human ingenuity, ingenuity is now being poured into creating virtual life experiences rather than into industries that make real things, such as hydroelectric dams. In his succinct words, we are already disappearing up our own brain stems. While perhaps not many of us were ever engaged in building hydroelectric dams, one can see the point he is making. There's a danger that we spend time watching a DVD of friends rather than going out and actually meeting our friends. As so often in life, it's a question of balance. One of the features of the book is that the author examines aspects of our behaviour in relation to our evolutionary past. He suggests that our brains evolved in the Pleistocene era between 200,000 and 130,000 years ago. Knowing when to start, knowing when to start but not when to stop, is one of humankind's defining characteristics. We want, we desire, we covet. And that is what has driven us along over the millennia. In relation to food intake, which is becoming a real problem today, he notes that our hunter-gatherer ancestors had to take their food where they could find it because they didn't know where the next meal was coming from or indeed whether unfriendly neighbours would try and take it from them. Later in the book he looks at the more unexpected topic of enough happiness and suggests that humans are not designed to have happiness as a natural default state. Rather we are built to worry and again in evolutionary terms this was a matter of survival our Neolithic ancestors needed to stay perpetually alert for dangers. You never knew what was behind the next tree. You will not be surprised to know that one of the chapters in the book is entitled Enough Stuff. Oscar Wilde said that there are two tragedies in life. 
One is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. Most of us today in the West have every material thing that we need to support an enjoyable and rewarding life. So why the continual yearning for more stuff? Shopping, as many have pointed out in recent years, is the modern religion. And the vast shopping arcades are modern cathedrals. Part of the attraction, it seems, is not so much in having the goods, but the thrill of acquisition. The process of choosing, dare one say hunting, the items for purchase, seems to produce a surge of the pleasure dopamine, the pleasure hormone dopamine in our brains. Apparently shoe shops now expect that a certain proportion of the goods bought on a Saturday will be returned on Monday, once the pleasure of the selection and purchase has worn off. Some of this behaviour is blamed on our celebrity culture today. We see well-known women and men advertising merchandise, so well-known that they almost seem like our friends, and we'd like what they've got. It's time for a little personal input here. Generally speaking, I would go a long way to avoid a shopping trip, unless it's for essential food supplies. But those who know me quite well will not be surprised to know that over the last 40 years, I have amassed a large collection of books. After all, books are different, aren't they? (laughs) They represent human knowledge and wisdom gathered over generations. Be that as it may, the day of reckoning has arrived. as we prepare to move house later in the year. For the last few months, I have been going through my collection of books, boxing up the titles that I want to take with me, and disposing of many others. A couple of weeks ago, we took some 20 bags of books to an Oxfam shop for recycling, with more to go. In a funny sort of way, I've enjoyed the process of sifting and sorting and felt very virtuous every time another bag was filled. But there is a serious point here. Recently, there have been a number of programs on TV about people who have acquired vast amounts of stuff over the years, so much so that their homes have become a health and fire hazard. Acquiring stuff can be an addiction, whatever the reasons for it. I'm doing quite well with my books, but I've scarcely started on the files and papers yet. (laughs) Perhaps the part of Enough, the book that I was most interested in, was what he would say about economic growth. Even by the 1970s, some had recognised that the Earth's resources were limited and that if we carried on using those resources at the same rate, humanity's future was likely to be bleak. You may remember 
E.F. Schumacher's classic, Small is Beautiful. And there was also the prestigious Club of Rome's Limits to Growth report. In the 1980s, I remember being impressed by James Robertson's book, The Sane Alternative, in which he said that it was not a matter of no growth, but a balance between people and the environment. In preparing his own book, John Nash tried to find and speak to economists who could advise him about models of a sustainable economy rather than continual economic growth. But he had great difficulty in finding any. The one person he did speak to, the Professor of Sustainable Development at Surrey University, advised that the government has a split personality on this. On the one hand, it tells people to get out of their cars and to consume less. But currently, our economy relies strictly on increases in consumption. The professor said it was extremely difficult to find political space to have this discussion. And this is something we can still see today. The manuscript, for enough, was written by 2007, before the worst of the financial and banking crisis. But for the paperback version, which came out in 2009, the author has added an afterword entitled, Enough Comes to the Crunch. In this, he describes how he was invited to address a seminar at the Cabinet Office he thought he was being asked to give advice about how economic policy could go in a more sustainable direction. In fact, he found that the senior civil servants merely wanted some personal lifestyle advice about coping with the extra stresses brought on by the financial crisis. As John Nash comments, it is perturbing that even the big picture guys don't seem to want to look at the big picture. All hopes are still pinned on a quick return to a constant growth economic model as the way of getting out of our current problems. Over the last couple of years, I can't recall any mainstream politician raising serious questions about whether our fragile earth can cope with the ever-increasing demands we are putting on it. Instead, it is left to ecologists such as Sir David Attenborough to do this on our behalf. I do think there is a weakness in our political process that serious, perhaps unpopular, issues cannot be raised for debate without others trying to make political capital out of it. In an address of this length, I cannot do justice to the many ideas and suggestions contained in the book. As you will have heard from the reading earlier, the author takes a broad approach to his subject, including areas where he believes a spiritual approach can help, such as the practice of meditation. When the paperback edition of the book came out, it was reviewed in our periodical The Inquirer, and in that issue, 
July 2009, there was a substantial interview with the author, which I can recommend. He revealed that the book had been translated into 11 languages, including Korean. It is interesting to speculate what the Koreans, presumably the South Koreans, made of it all. And so, may we who have much show generosity to those who have less. And in the week ahead, may we look upon our own cravings with compassion and have the wisdom to understand when enough truly is enough. Amen. Go well and blessed be.